as soon as possible. But for the rest of us, it's time to start. We are um, doing a teaching series that's based on um, the seven, actually eight, sayings of Jesus where he says, I am. All right, so he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the, the resurrection and the life. And today we're going to look at where he says, I am the good shepherd. So what I'm going to do for you, we'll get the slides up here in a second, so just hang on with it. Hang on. We usually have them up here. So what, what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to read you a, a portion of John chapter 10, but I want to put it in context for you because it's really important because there are three, these three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, all flow together. So to understand what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it here, we have to understand what he started back in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, um, well, I'll tell you this story first. My son, when he was yay big, all right, if you've heard this story before, just laugh along with me. It's, it's, let's just practice. Oh, we've heard this story. <laughs> anyway, my son, when he was about six years old, seven years old, um, we went over to my mom's condo, and so I took him down to the pool, and I'm swimming in the pool, and he's running around doing all kinds of stuff in this gated area. And, you know, those kind of older condos where they have those like tables, those like cement tables and everything, you know, out there. And so there was a hornet's nest underneath the bottom of the table. So I'm swimming and I'm watching Elias and he's sticking his head underneath the table and looking at these bees and I'm telling him, get away from there, Elias, get away from there. Get away from the, get away from the hornets, Elias. And so the next thing I do, I look up and all of a sudden he's walking and he's got a stick in his hand. I'm like, okay, this isn't gonna be good. He walks right up to the hornet's nest and he whacks the hornet's nest all the bees come out and I'm telling him, run, Elias, run. And so he starts running and, you know, the bees don't travel very far, but they, so they, they stop. But he intentionally hit a hornet's nest, which is crazy. But if you know anything about Jesus and you study some of the stories and some of the things that he did, Jesus intentionally hit the hornet's nest. He went right where everything was going on and he knocked it over. We see him in the temple knocking over tables. We see him confronting religious leaders, which is what he's doing in this section of John. Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And the reason that he is confronting them is because God had established this nation to be given his word, to be given his ways, and to form a bloodline and to form a, uh, a community so that when the Savior, when Jesus was born, he would be born into this nation and ultimately through this nation revealed to the world. God was trying to create this beautiful picture. And what had happened was that the religious leaders, they were called Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and there's also another group called Herodians, which were more really not so much religious, but they had influence over the people. Pharisees were people who believed in the strict interpretation of the law. What it says is what it is. The Sadducees would kind of make it up as they went along. If they didn't like portions of scripture, they would omit it, right? And say, you know, well, we don't believe the book of Isaiah, so we don't need that. They'd throw it out. That's literally one of the books they threw out. They mainly focused on the first five books. But these people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, the scribes were people who all day long would, would, would translate and transfer the Word of God. They would write the Word of God, handwrite the Word of God, over and over and over again. And the scribes were also responsible um, for, the inter for the correct interpretations of the, of, the, of the Scriptures as well. So this group of people were responsible and entrusted with God's word and they were responsible to interpret the heart of the, of the scripture back to the people. And they weren't doing that. They had created a system that was um, really was drawing the people to themselves and not really drawing the people to the Lord. And so they had created a system that was about wealth and power for themselves and was really not, and it was about casting burdens upon the lives of the people and not really leading them into truth. And so Jesus comes in in chapter 8 and he does this multiple times. You'll see him look at the scribes and the Pharisees and he said, You're a brood of vipers, you're a bunch of snakes. In chapter 8, he calls them liars, looks right at them, tells them you're liars. They go, We don't understand what you're saying. He goes, Of course not, because I'm speaking truth to you. If I spoke lies, you would understand lies because you're of your dear of your father, the devil, the father of lies. So he calls them liars. He hits the hornet's nest. He's trying to stir them up. He's trying to force them into a decision. 
Because what the Pharisees would do is they would often stand objectively. They would privately say Jesus isn't God, but they wouldn't publicly come out with it. And so Jesus is forcing them into publicly either acknowledging him or publicly renouncing him. And so when he says this, the Pharisees pick up stones in chapter 8 to kill him. They're like, you're calling us a liar? Oh, I got your lie, man. And so they pick up, pick up rocks to stone him, and Jesus just steps into the crowd because there was a lot of people. He was in the temple, right? So it was a day of worship. There was all kinds of people there, and Jesus just stepped into the crowd and walked away. Well, of course, the Pharisees are following him. This is where we get into chapter 9. He leaves the temple yard, walks out, and they don't have to go far because Jesus goes outside of the temple, and he finds a blind man begging at the gate, Okay. And he heals the blind man who had been blind from birth. Well, what happens when you hear a blind man? Guy who's been blind, a bunch of people around, all of a sudden everybody's curious, right? So the crowd gathers. What happened here? And so Jesus has, now he has the crowd of people. And of course, the Pharisees soon find him. They don't have the rocks anymore. And Jesus starts giving them in chapter 9 a tutorial about blindness. And he starts talking about blindness. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they were hearing this and they said to him, are you trying to tell us we're blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would be innocent. But because you say you see, therefore you're guilty. And he said, I've come to bring division. I've come to take those who are blind and show them that they can see. And I've come to take those who claim to see. And I've come to show them that they are truly blind. And so he calls them out. He basically says, you're liars. Then he says, you're blind. Blind leaders of the blind. And so as you can tell, there's this just this surge of emotion. And the people are looking at this more than likely going, thank God. Somebody, this is, because what would happen is when the priests misrepresent the Lord to the people, the people get an image of God that is not correct. You understand? And so you see this in the Old Testament and God would remove these priests who were misrepresenting him. You'd have the priest, Eli, whose sons would be taking the people's offerings before they even had a chance to offer it to the Lord. They'd be coming to bring their offerings, and offerings are mandated upon our hearts to free will give to the Lord. And so he would, the people would come to give their offerings, and the sons of Eli, the priest, would take them. And they'd go, wait a second, dude, we haven't even presented it to the Lord yet. And the sons of Eli would be like, that's okay, don't worry, we'll take care of that. And so the sons of Eli were taking the offering from the people before they could offer to the Lord. The sons of Eli were macking all the girls in the temple. So they were finding all the good-looking girls, and they were sleeping with all the girls in the temple, these priests. And so the perception of the people towards God because of the people representing him was that Jesus is greedy, or God is greedy, and he just takes, and then all of a sudden and he's, he's not who he says he is. And so God removed those groups of people. What was happening here in, this, in the New Testament was that these people, the, the, the Pharisees, were oppressive to the people. God gave 10 commandments. By the time Jesus came, there was over 600. Okay, 600. Good luck keeping all of those. And these people were experts in the law. They were rule keepers. And so they would run around putting burdens on people that they themselves, that's what Jesus said, you consume a camel and you strain out a gnat. You put burdens on people that you yourselves are not even lift, worth, worth willing to lift a finger. So they would stand by objectively giving out moral orders to everyone. And they themselves would, of course, exempt themselves from doing any of it. Again, misrepresenting the Lord and profaning God before the people. And so that's why Jesus is confronting them here. That's why he turned over the tables of the money changers, because you're profaning the father before the people. It wasn't the offerings that was the problem. The Jews had set up this exchange system that you could only use temple money. So when you came to give your offering in the temple and you were from Persia or somebody else was from Libya, because they would come from all over the world during Passover to give their offerings, you couldn't bring gold from Persia into the temple because it was corrupt. You couldn't bring gold from Libya into the temple because it was corrupt. Not according to the Bible, but according to the priests. And so the priests set up this system. So if you're going to come from Libya and you're going to come and make an offering, okay, you're going to buy a dove or a goat or a, an ox, and you couldn't even bring your own ox. You had to buy a temple-certified ox. So if you came to bring an offering to the Lord and you were going to bring, you say, hey, I brought this lamb all the way from wherever I'm from, and I want to offer it to the Lord. And they go, nope, not temple-certified. Sorry you got to go over here and buy one of our temple-certified lambs. Oh, by the way, you can't pay with it with your currency. You have to exchange the currency with the temple guard, 
And the temple guard will exchange your currency. And the currency rates were outrageously upside down. And so that's why Jesus, when he walked in there, people wonder why he turned the tables over. That's why. He said, you make this into a den of thieves. This is not a house of merchandise. You blaspheme and profane me before the people. They think I'm greedy. They think I'm corrupt. They think I'm unapproachable. They think I'm unreasonable. None of those things were true. And Jesus threw over the tables, drove them out with whips. Whips. Jesus made a whip. I mean, he's beating them out of the temple. You imagine? Be like, whoa, what's going on here? And the people who would have been oppressed by these leaders would have been like, wow, this is amazing. Because Jesus was rightly representing God. And so you wonder why Jesus has all these harsh words. He doesn't have harsh words for the people. When you read the text, and when you, every time Jesus is saying something harsh, it's usually directed towards the leadership of the people, the spiritual leadership of the people, because they were misrepresenting him. And so he goes from this attitude of liar, then he tells them that they're blind, right? He's winning friends and influencing people, you know? And what he's really trying to do is he's trying to confront their arrogance in order that they would humble themselves. And we see one of the guys, you see the story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, right? He humbled himself and went to Jesus. You know, and, he, and, and actually approached him. And there was a lot of them ultimately that would come around, but their, their lead, the leadership of the leaders were not like that. And so Jesus is going from this place where he's saying, you are uh, liars, you are misrepresenting God, you're profaning him with your words and your actions. He told them you're blind, you claim to see, but you don't know anything that you're talking about. And then he goes to this passage and basically calls them thieves. So starting in chapter 10, he goes on to talk about thieves and robbers. And, he, and then he goes down, if you look at the upper part of the passage where he's talking about, I am the gate. The gate opens anyone who enters in by another way as a thief and a robber. Then he goes on to continually in calling them thieves and robbers because they're not approaching it the right way. Then he connects them with the ultimate thief. And if you were a Jew, you would have known exactly what he was saying. It was coded language to us, but it wasn't coded to them. So when Jesus uses the word I am, that's not coded. He was, to us, we go, wow, he is. But to a Jew, when Jesus would use the words, I am, it's called a tetragrammaton. And what it was, it was a hybrid name for God that the Jews would never use. They would never use that word. They would never write that word they, because they considered the name of God holy. They knew the word, but they would never use it. And you see Jesus running around and he's throwing it around like he's throwing out Tic Tacs. He's going around, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. One greater than Moses is here, I am. You know, he's going around just totally putting it out there. They would know exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. He was presenting himself to them as God. And so he presents himself to these people and he's saying, listen, this is what I've set shepherds over the people. The people would understand this concept of shepherding because the Lord always would speak to the prof, through the prophets. He'd say, listen, I'm your shepherd. David would even say the Lord is my shepherd, but it was multiple other places in the scripture where God says, listen, you're my sheep. I care for you. I'm shepherd. I'm your shepherd. I'm going to put faithful people over you, shepherds who will guide you, who will lead you, who will draw you to me faithfully. And these people were not. And so we get to this point and we wonder, why is Jesus saying he's the good shepherd? Because he's contrasting himself against the leadership that they currently had. And he's saying, listen, this is, these are thieves and robbers. The thief does not come to, but to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, life more abundantly. That's John 10, 10. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when they see a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. And he isn't their shepherd. And so when the wolf attacks and scatters the flock, the hired hand runs away. Basically, he's telling them, you're hirelings. You only hold this position because of the money and the influence that you can have. And it's all for your selfish gain. You're not even using your influence to benefit people. You're only using your influence to benefit yourself. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know my father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not, that I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. Talking about the other nations, people that Jesus would bring. I will bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I give my life so that I may take it back again. No one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have authority to lay it down. And when I want, I can take it back up again also. For this is what my Father has commanded. When he said these things, the people were divided against him. 
Jesus doesn't mind. Jesus is not about division. He's about unity. Really? Unity among his people. Absolutely. But he has no problem with division with anything outside of him. There's no problem. He wants to force the world into a decision. He has no issues with it. <laughs> no issues. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna decide who I am. And I'm okay with your decision, but you will make a choice. He forces the world into a decision. That's what Jesus does. And we get all weird about it. Oh my gosh, we get uncomfortable. Like the disciples, Jesus offended people. He's called the rock of offense, okay? Now he didn't intentionally offended people. He offended them when they thought they were correct. And when they thought they, they were higher than they should have been. Jesus humbles us that he might exalt us. That's the point, all right? And so Jesus would offend them, and he would offend the religious leaders. The disciples come to Jesus. They're like, hey, you offended them. They were mad at you. They're really mad. They're really offended. And Jesus is like, oh, well. It's basically his attitude. He said, whoever does not come to, whoever does not gather to me is scattered from me. And again, he forces us into a choice. We have to understand this as Christians. And we can't be uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus calls the world to a choice. He claims to be God. And he says, you decide. He refuses to, he, he does not give us the option, liar, lunatic, or Lord, as C.S. Lewis would say. There is no other option. He doesn't mind. You want to call him a liar? He's a crazy man. You know, he's a liar. He, everything he says is a lie. He's okay with that. Call me that. Fine. Go your way. He's okay with you even calling him a madman. Jesus is a lunatic. The guy who thinks he's God. Are you crazy? This guy's nuts. He's okay with that too. Call me lunatic. But he, he refuses to be called good. I'm either a liar, I'm a lunatic, or I'm a lord. Which one am I? Choose. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Jesus is like, great. Who do you say that I am? Again, forcing the opinion, forcing the choice. He will not allow us to remain neutral in a choice with him. He's okay with our decisions. We choose our own way to our destruction and to our, or to the life, but he is not okay with there not being a decision. And so we as Christians, we have to understand that that's part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is to call people unto a decision. Part of the gospel is to call people from where they are to where they need to be and to confront the reality of God. They don't have to believe it. They don't have to accept it, you know. But part of the call of us, of the, of the church and of the, of, the, of the presentation is to call people to a decision. And they said, well, he's got a demon. And others said, no, who can do these things? That doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open blind eyes? He escalates the confrontation. They began to plot. They began to, mur to, to murder him. And so we see in this passage, we see a lot of things, but two things that stand out. We see a shepherd and we see sheep, okay? The, again, we just covered this. Jesus saw this. The people would see their leaders as shepherds. Jesus exposes the falseness of their system. It wasn't the system. It was the application of the system that was false. The shepherd... What was the job of a shepherd? It was like a man's job. We look at shepherds and we think, oh, these nice little guys with sticks and these kind of cool robes. You had to be a dude if you were going to be a shepherd. You couldn't be a wimp if you're going to be a shepherd. You would confront wild beasts. It was a very high risk occupation. High risk. You would confront wolves. You would confront bears. You would confront lions. And you would confront thieves. We see it with David. Like, how are you going to kill uh, Goliath? He's been a warrior from the beginning, he told Saul, Saul told him. And David said, hey, man, this dude is no different than everything I've faced in the wilderness. I have saved the sheep from the paw of the bear and the mouth of the lion. I know how to fight these wild creatures. I can handle it. So there's all these stories. So if you understand what a shepherd is, is a high-risk job, it was a messy job, it was a dirty job. And Jesus says, I'm this guy. I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to deal with the wolves and I'm going to deal with the bears and I'm going to deal with the lions and I'm going to deal with the thieves. This is what he says. And then we get this picture of who we are. So, you know, we're sheep. <laughs> and Jesus not only is the shepherd, but he becomes like us and he becomes a lamb who gives his life away. And what we got to know is that sheep... This is really a picture. Jesus shows us, the Bible tells us all these different pictures of how God relates to us. Husband to wife, right? He'll show us that. Potter to clay, king to kingdom. He shows us all these different ways of how he relates to us so that we can get a picture of, 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 of our relationship with him and how he wants to relate to us. And one of the ways is this way. And he calls a sheep. A sheep by nature has no natural defenses. Your house cat has claws, right? 
every animal has some natural defense, whether it's speed, whether it's claws or roar, or you know, it has some way of presenting itself to defend itself. Sheep have no natural defenses. They don't run fast. You ever seen a sheep run fast? That's not gonna happen, you know? They, don't, they have no ability to defend themselves. It's the same with us in the spirit. We have no natural defenses in the spirit, none whatsoever. The war against us is not in the flesh, and if it is in the flesh, it's a manifestation of something going on in the spirit. We as humans or people by nature, we have no natural defenses in the spirit. We cannot defend ourselves at all. We need a shepherd. Sheep get easily lost. Not needy eyes, beady eyes. Sheep have little beady eyes, okay? A sheep gets lost, they just kind of wander, do -de do and all of a sudden they're like, hey, where's the crowd? Where'd everybody go? They don't even know, because they just wandered away. You know, squirrel, oh, check it out. Sheep have beady eyes. They're stories of sheep because they can't see far. You and I, we have very limited vision, and a sheep can't see far. There's been stories where sheep, there's been a wolf lying outside of the sheep, right, just lying there trying to figure out which one he's going to eat. And there's stories where the sheep actually walk up to the wolf thinking it's another sheep because they can't see far, right? Oftentimes we do the same thing. We can't see far. We get lost. We don't know where we are. I don't know about you. Some weeks I'm so busy I lose the script. It's Wednesday and I'm like, what, what am I doing again? What was I, what was I, what was I, what was going on? I mean, you get lost really easy. Why did we get married? I can't, I can't, what was that? I'm lost. Remind me again? Oh yeah. Why did we have kids? Oh yeah. What was I thinking? Why did we move here? I don't, I don't understand. We get lost. Sheep have peg legs. They fall over real easy. You ever see sheep? They got these little peg legs. Well, you know, tonk, they fall over all We fall down all the time. Dirty, dumb. A sheep, when it gets stuck, does not know how to back itself out. A sheep, when it's stuck, forces itself deeper, whatever it's stuck in. So if a sheep is stuck in thorns, it won't pull itself back. It pushes itself in. If it's stuck in a crag of a rock, a sheep doesn't push itself back. It pushes itself deeper in, only making, it, only making the situation worse. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We don't back out, we just push in, we just, all of a sudden we're like making it worse. Let's send that email, let's not. Let's make that Facebook post, let's not. We make it worse. Oh, you said that, I'm gonna say this. Boom, we just push it, push it, push it. Among many things. Sheep have a mob instinct. Once the crowd starts running, all the sheep start running. Mob instinct, why are we running? I don't know, we're just running. Where are we going? I don't know, I don't know. And so what's the point? The sheep need a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd, when a sheep has a shepherd, they have the defense. When a sheep has a shepherd, they have the vision. When a sheep has shepherds, they have stability. When a sheep has the shepherd, they have the ability to be made clean. Their, their intelligence rolls from the, the, the intelligence of their shepherd. We have the mind of Christ. When a sheep has a shepherd, they're not easily scattered. We need a shepherd. So we're going to show a couple of things of what a sheep, what a shepherd does, right? Four things, I believe. Four things that a shepherd does. Number one, a shepherd sacrifices. This is why we need a shepherd. This is how Jesus wants to interact with us and, how we, and what we need to draw from him. Jesus said this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. This is very important because God uses the word for life here in the Greek, the New Testament, so you know was written in Koine Greek. It was the language of the day. The Greeks had conquered the world, even into the days of Rome. The Greeks' influence over the world was so great that everyone spoke the common tongue was Greek. So if you, whatever culture you were from, like today it's English, that's pretty much the common tongue among nations. And so we try to find a common language that everyone can speak. And their common language was Greek. And so when the Bible was written in the New Testament, it was written in Aramaic, which, became, which was a, a form of Hebrew, and it was also written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek is a very specific language. They have multiple words for the same thing. They got like four words for love. Life, I'll show you the words for life. Different ways for life. There's the word bios, which means biological life. There's the word um, soma, which is what your body is, physical life. There's the word pneuma, which is spirit life. And there's the word suke or psyche, which is soul life. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay? So where we get the word psychic from. 
is from that. So God's not in the psychic. He's in the pneuma. He's in the spirit. But Jesus uses the word, I sacrifice my suke, my life for them. And what is he saying? He's saying, my will is to give my life for, these, for you. My mind is set upon giving my life for you. My emotion is set upon giving my life for you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, my entire being is focused on giving my life away. That's what he's trying to say. That's what he is saying. And so the shepherd claims ownership over the sheep. So the sheep sacrifices, and the shepherd claims ownership over the sheep. He owns you. If you're a Christian and you've given your life to him, the Bible tells us this. Your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. That's why I tell people when they come to Christ, I'm like, you realize you're giving your life away. And that's why people don't want to come to Jesus, because they don't want to give away with their life. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. But if you desire to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. It's a complete exchange of your life. And so Jesus claims ownership over the whole world, number one, because he created the whole world. And because he created the whole world, he owns it all, which means he's free to do with it whatever he chooses. The second thing he does is he claims ownership over his sheep. Why? Because he sacrificed for you. But not only does he claim ownership over you, he, he presents himself in a position where he will now protect you, provide for you, lead you, and guide you. So it's not just an ownership aspect as you're mine, I'm going to do what, you know, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming you as mine and this is what I'm putting over you. I'm giving this to you. Which brings us to the second thing. So the shepherd sacrifices and through that sacrifice pulls ownership to himself. The second thing that happens is the shepherd provides. Psalm 23, very famous psalm, all about the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's 23 verse 1. I got a few of these in here. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. What does the shepherd provide for the Christian? What does he provide? He provides promises. Promises. The key to your blessing, Christian, is to understand his prom oh, these three things. If you understand these three things, these are the keys to your blessing. 1 Peter 1, 4 says, Because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. It is through these promises that he enables you to draw from his divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world by fallen desires. Promises. He gives us promises in the scripture. He provides through us so that we can align ourselves. God said it. Therefore, we can believe it. We can trust it. We can activate it. We can contend for it. We can pull it towards us. The promises. We have not because we ask not. We don't pull on heaven. That's it. We just kind of sit there and just like watch the world go by. When Jesus has an entire world, that's why we give away promise books. We want you to understand promises. We want you to learn to pull on those promises. We want you to learn to activate those promises. His promises are his provision. He makes promises. He's not one that would lie. Every promise is predicated upon an action, so you know. Jesus promises to save everyone but it's predicated upon an action, correct? It's predicated upon you giving your heart to him. But that promise is activated through an action. Financial provision, predicated upon an action. Inner peace, predicated upon an action. Everything that God promises is predicated upon us interacting with him. He wants interaction. So the shepherd provides promises, great and precious promises. The shepherd provides his presence. His presence. We're here this morning and His presence is here. There's no need right now, right? You're not worried. Nobody should be afraid right now because you're in the presence of the Lord. That's a great provision. We have His presence over our life. That is a tremendous provision to the believer through the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The world, those who don't know me, can't have Him. His presence is a huge provision to us. And if you don't know that, you need to draw more from His presence. And live from the presence. The Christian is to live from the presence. He provides his promises. He provides his presence. And he provides purpose. People in the world don't know who they are. Don't know why they are. Don't know what they are. Right? He gives us purpose. That is a huge provision. He tells you who you are. And he tells you what you're supposed to live for. And when you activate according to his purposes, life comes to you. When you live according to your purposes, you get depressed. Correct? Anybody done it your way, Frank Sinatra's? And you get there and you're like, you know, why am I depressed? Why now after I've worked so hard to get this car, am I so bummed out? I owned it for 10, now I've, I've had this car for 10 months and all that I have left now is payments. Why am I empty? It satisfied, satisfied you for a week or two, maybe a month. 
And now all of a sudden you don't want it anymore or it's not satisfying to you anymore because we're living according to our purposes. When we live according to our purposes, we always end up empty. When we live according to his purposes, he satisfies. That's the point. And so Jesus provides us with these things. He provides us with his promises, his purpose, and his presence. That's your inheritance, Christian. That's what we are to draw from. We're to know his promises, and we're going to go, wait a second. God's no respecter of persons. If he did that there, he'll do it for me. So David said, or excuse me, Jonathan. Jonathan's laying out in the field, have a great victory. The Philistines, the enemy army, had surrounded God's army. And Jonathan was just bored. And so he was out hanging out under a tree with his friend. And he was meditating upon the Lord. And he was meditating upon the promises of God. And he said, listen, God's no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if God saves by many or God saves by few. Let's go for a walk. And so he went for a walk and basically confronted a Philistine army and prayed and said, okay, Lord, if they tell us to, if they tell us to come up, that means the, we we're to go up there and fight them. If they tell us to stay where we are, that means you're not telling us to fight them. And so they go up to the Philistine army on the top of this hill and they confront the Philistine army and they're like, hey, come on up here. And so they go up there and they win a great victory. Why? Because Jonathan understood the promises of God. He understood that God is no respecter of persons. He pressed in and said, let me see if this will work for me. And he did. And they won a great victory. His presence and his purpose are great gifts to the Christian. The shepherd guides the sheep. This is, again, a huge point. So we need our shepherd. Shepherd guides us. After these things, after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. Key portion, key passage. We are to know his voice, okay? So if we're going to have a dinner party, we've got to have like a ladies gathering. I, I shared this first service. A bunch of women in a room and they're all talking because ladies like to talk. And Sherry's there and she's talking. I could close my eyes and find her in a room talking because I know her and I know her voice, okay? Oftentimes Christians don't know the voice of God because they have not spent time getting to know him intimately and they haven't spent time with him. When believers say, I don't hear the Lord, I say, start reading your Bible and start getting in an attitude and atmosphere of worship and start letting his presence come to you and start learning God's language, which is his word. The Holy Spirit speaks according to the word. If you do not hear the spirit of God, you probably do not understand his language, which is his word. So if you don't hear God, start reading his word, start getting his Bible and start putting it in you, start reading it and start spending time in an atmosphere of worship. You will learn to hear his voice. It says, my sheep know me and they follow me. What does it look like to follow Jesus? As obvious as this sounds, we need to clarify it because we really don't know what it looks like to follow Jesus. Yep, following Jesus. Hope, you know, what do you know? I'm a follower of Jesus. What does that look like? Does anybody really know? Well, I believe in him. Okay, you believe in him, but there's two commands. Come to me and follow me. What does it look like to follow him? It means, number one, we no longer seek our own interests. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It means that everything you do in your life is whatever is happening to you and through you is for the purposes of building his kingdom. That looks like the way we do our marriages, the way we raise our kids, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we go about our work and our workplaces. Our attitudes and our actions are to be reflected in building his kingdom. What does it look like to serve his kingdom in my workplace? What does it look like to serve his kingdom in my marriage? What does it look like to serve his kingdom in my finances, in my whatever arena? Pick one. What does it look like? This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It looks like personal transformation. What does personal transformation look like? Well, the first one is the attitude. Then we have the transformation. Transformation is obedience. As Christians, we have to, there's culture, all right? Let's define culture. Jesus says you're in the world, but you're not of the world, right? We have that, we're familiar with that. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but it just sounds really cool. All right, so we're in the world and we're not of the world. Then he tells us that we're part of a kingdom. So he's defining two cultures. We're part of a kingdom culture, but there's another culture, a cosmic or cosmos culture that is not of his way. The cosmos, you hear it said, I'll teach you this all the time, is that it's a system of thought. The world is a belief system. Get all you can. The one that dies with the most toys wins. Whatever you may think, love the one you're with. The world, the cosmos, is a belief system. And so when Jesus says you're in the world, but you're not of it, he's saying you're in a belief system, but you are not part of that belief system. You're in a system of thought, but you are to think and operate differently. 
You understand that? We operate according to the kingdom culture. So we are to learn what does the kingdom culture look like. This is a process. We have to learn what does it look like to be the kingdom culture? What does the kingdom culture look like? What are the principles of the kingdom? And then we obey them. We obey the king principles of the kingdom culture. We begin development in spiritual things. I tell this to Christians all the time. We need to be masters in the Holy Spirit. You can master and learn and understand the Holy Spirit. We know doctrine. A lot of, here we have, we have three different camps of believer. We have the Christian who knows his word inside and out, upside down, one side, other, chapter, verse, all this other stuff. They got their doctrine light, but they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit or how he functions. Then we got the other camp over here, and then there's a middle one. We got the other camp over here that know all the crazy things. Woo, spirit, whoa, spirit, 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 but know no doctrine at all. Nothing, zero. Start to, well, God's doing a new thing. That's what I hear all the time, my spiritual friends. I'm like, that's great. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What do we, which, which one is it? So it's, what is it? Is it doctrine or is it spirit? It's both. Bible says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so we have to learn the letter and apply it through the spirit. We have the middle ground who just really don't care about anything else. They just really don't care about the doctrine. They really don't care about the spirit. But for the believer, we need to be developed in spiritual things. We need to learn how the Holy Spirit works. We need to learn how to host the Holy Spirit. We need to learn how to activate the Holy Spirit. And we need to learn how to release the Holy Spirit. And until we do that, we will not see the effectiveness of the power that Jesus gave time to give. He's not created us for Sunday going to meeting, guys. This isn't who you are. It's not, oh, let's show up, it's safe for the whole family, and we'll all go home and live the rest of our lives, and Sunday's just one thing we do. That is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you think following Jesus is only coming to church on Sunday, that's part of it. But if you think that's all there is, you have completely missed it. You're completely missing it. You say, is there more? There's a whole lot more. So we develop in spiritual things. We sacrifice our wants and our desires for his. Let's just say this together. There's pain in the offering. We sacrifice things for Jesus because he wants us to. In other words, what you want, and you clear have instruction over here, this is not God's best. This is not what glorifies him. So we sacrifice that. This is not the relation. I want this relationship so bad. This is what I see mostly with young people, particularly. I want this. I do not want to be alone. So I'm going to sacrifice. I want this relationship so bad. Scripturally, you shouldn't be over here. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to stay over here. Well, then it always turns into a mess. What we have to do is we have to, we have to sacrifice what we want and stand in a place of what he wants. God will ultimately give you what you are looking for if you will be obedient to him, particularly in marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing. I encourage you to get married. We're a pro-marriage. I'll use Mauricio's. Mauricio was telling me, it's like, why don't some of these single people just invite each other out for coffee? You know, it's like, what, what's, he's like, yeah, woo, yeah, come on. You know, he's like, you know, he's like, he's like, we got all these like singles, you know, all this whole spectrum of singles. And he's, he's asking me, he's like, you know, shouldn't they just walk up and say, hey, you want to have coffee? Let's just try. I want all the men to just say this with me. If you're a single guy. Hey, hey. you want to have coffee? <laughs> and let's just have all the girls go, maybe. <laughs> They'll think about it. They can't make up their mind. So you have to ask him again and again and again. So. I'll, I'll pray about it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Throw the holy water on him. Yeah. Yeah, we did this thing for, um, I don't want to get off track, but we did this thing for um, February. And just like, you know, the guys, we, we have to learn. This is kingdom culture. As men, we have to learn what it looks like to be friends with a girl. And what it looks like to treat a girl as their sister and be friends with them. Because most guys, the immediate thing is sexual. Because that's what well, we know. We know we're macking, hey, you know, kind of, hey, what's up? Yeah, girl. Yeah. You know, we're macking. We're presenting this whole thing. And then the girls have to treat the Christian guys as normal brothers, as friends, and not vampires. Right? Because I get girls going, oh, he's asking her out. He's a wolf. No, he's not a wolf. He's a man asking a girl on a date. That's not a wolf, right? And so women, oftentimes Christian women, because you've been taken advantage of and you come in the church and you're trying to be really holy. And so you're holding up the cross, the crucifix, because he's the vampire, you know, and your girlfriend's behind throwing holy water on him going, he's no good. No, you shouldn't be with him. No. So you cannot look at the guy as a vampire. 
And guys, you cannot look at the girl as just some extension of your sexuality. Help me help you. <laughs> He's pro-marriage. God's pro-marriage. We should date. If, you want, if, you're, if you're lonely, you're hungry, you want to date, you want a good Christian girl, look around. Same thing. Girls, hey, let's go out. Yeah, what are we going to do? I don't suggest dinner. Lunch is great. Group dating is a really great thing. Or group friendships. It's not even dating. It's friendships. Let's go to the game. Let's, I don't know, let's just hang out as a group. Let's go. We used to go out and just hang out as groups. That's how I kind of got with my wife. We'd just be groups of us. Because we're sheep, right? We have that mob mentality. We just move as a group. Where are we going? I don't know. We're just going as a group. I have no idea. <laughs> here we are. Yeah, we're here now. Okay. So it's personal transformation. It's life application, which means we intentionally align our lives and we become servants. We adapt the servant mentality of the, of, the, of the Christian, which is to serve our family, serve our workplace, serve our church, serve our city. We're servants. Intentional life application, following Jesus, building a better world. What does that look like? Planting, starting churches, supporting and funding the churches, helping orphanages, feeding the poor, establishing systems and systematic portions of justice throughout the world. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We are to be the ones who are bringing these things to pass, that are cultivating these things in our world. These are, this is an outline of what it looks like to follow Jesus. We follow him. He guides us, right? You can, only be, you can only be led by Christ if you want him to lead you. You have to apply yourself to it as well and learn to hear his voice. The shepherd protects. This is the fourth one, last one. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, Psalm 23 again, I am not afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protects me and comforts me. You prepare a, a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me, anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. What does he protect us from? Predators, okay? Disturbing influences, oftentimes. I tell Christians, you, when you leave the shepherd, you put yourself in the presence of disturbing influences. And what happens when a sheep spends too much time among disturbing influences? They lose their babies. They either cannot get pregnant or whatever it is that they're carrying, they lose it because they're in too much of a state of anxiety and too much of a state of fear. Oftentimes that anxiety is because there's a detachment from the shepherd. The sheep give birth very naturally when they're in, com when they're in communion with the shepherd, but when there's an anxiety. So Jesus protects us from disturbing influences. Lots of Christians have been giving birth. This is a concept, a spiritual concept. You come to Christ, things are to be born in you. Dreams, hopes, desires, visions, calling, purpose is born inside of you, is, is you're impregnated with it. Right? But unless you walk with the shepherd, you're not going to give birth to that type of thing. If you walk away from the shepherd and spend your time among disturbing influences, more than likely you're going to lose what you carry. I see it time and time again. I shared in first service, people come, oh, I'm going, you know, where I'm Kevin, I'm going to Hollywood. Oh, that's great. What are you do? I'm going to be an actor. Awesome. I'm going to be a singer. I'm moving to New York. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to do all these great things. Wow, wonderful. You need to commit and connect to a church. It's your first responsibility. Of course, they don't most of the time. And so they spend their lives among disturbing influences. And then all of a sudden the dream, the vision, the hope, the goal that God had given them is now lost. They've lost what they were, what they were created to carry. Doesn't mean you can't recover it, but you gotta get back in the presence of the shepherd. He protects us from the things that would devour us, predators. I could quote you verse off that, but I won't for time. Disturbing influences and rivalries. There should be no rivalry among the believer. You're all equally loved by Jesus. All of you, equally loved. He is for you when you're against yourself. He, what he does for one, he will do for another. He's no respecter. We all have different roles. We all have different functions and different responsibilities. And we're created to make certain things known, different, different roles, but that doesn't mean that one is greater. We'll say you're a pastor. You know what the, you know what the word pastor means? It means I gotta serve you more than you serve me if I'm truly a pastor. Churches that don't get that right are not manifesting the gospel. I just want to let you know that. Jesus didn't set, that's the very thing he was confronting. So I want you to, because as a Christian, you're going to have to discern church because you're called to be a part of a church. And so you need to learn how to discern a church. And the discernment of the church is when you have egotistical leaders that set themselves up as high in hierarchy systems. And it doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't have influence. It doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't have authority. It doesn't mean that the pastor isn't to be respected and honored for the position that they hold. All of those things are true. 
that should be done. But when the pastor is exalting himself or the leadership is exalting themselves to where they're the only ones that matter and there's no servitude, there's no empowerment to the people, there's nothing that they do to elevate the lives of the people, they are wrong. They're wrong. So the shepherd protects the sheep. Disturbing influences of rivalries. There's no big eyes and little U's in the kingdom of God. We have different roles. Different roles. There's many members of the same body, different roles. Well, I'm like really talking my head off here right there. I'm among friends. I'm, I'm, I'm talking well beyond my time, but I'm going to close it right here. This is, a, I want to share with you this. When it says he anoints our head with oil, this is important. Some of you really need this one. He anoints the head with oil. My cup overflows. So the oil in the spirit, the oil in the Bible is access to the Holy Spirit. It's his presence. It's his power. It's his purpose in the spirit, the anointing oil. What a shepherd would do is they would take the oil and they would mix it with sulfur and they would mix the oil with perfume. And so they would take the perfume sulfur oil and they would rub it on the face of the sheep. Sulfur, it's a crazy story. Sulfur comes from liquefied rock, literally molten rock. Volcanic rock and gas turns into sulfur, fire, if you will. And so God takes this sulfur, this, uh, which is a natural pesticide, among other things. Sulfur is very used in so many different things. But sulfur is a, very, is, a, is a natural pesticide. He takes the natural pesticide, mixes it with oil, and then throws some perfume in there to make it smell good and rubs it on the face of the sheep because the sheep, more than any other animal, are susceptible to disease. More than cattle, more than pigs, more than chickens. That's why we don't raise sheep but primarily in this country. Not just because there's no appetite for it, but because they're very susceptible and the farmers lose their stock a lot to disease and all kinds of different things. We're very susceptible. So without the oil on the face of the sheep, what happens in the summertime is flies go into their nose and lay larvae. They lay eggs. And the larvae, when it hatches, the larvae goes up into the brain of the sheep, driving the sheep crazy. The sheep starts banging its head on the wall. Sheep jump off of cliffs because these, this noise in their head is too great. They can't handle it, right? Anybody have noise? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anxiety, fear, all this stuff. What he's saying here is the, the, the noise, the, the anointing, the presence, the access to God is what eliminates the noise. That's what it does. We need to live out of the presence. Some of you guys got so much noise, you got racing, you got all this stuff going on all the time. That's, that's not what God is wanting for you. He wants to give you peace, and that peace comes through the Spirit. And so what we need to know is when God is talking about anointing our heads with oil, He's talking about His presence. He's talking about being a natural pesticide against the lies, against the untruths, against all of the crazy things, your fears, your worries, and your doubts. Right? That's what He's talking about. His presence is the natural um, uh, antidote to those things. So some of you, you need more of His presence. You need to learn His presence. It's very, very important. It's sad to say... I drive by about three or four churches on my way here, and I'm pro-church, I'm for the church, but oftentimes I look at the church and I wonder, what is it that God, what is it that you want from us? And what's sad to say is what we teach ourselves in, in, in America is that we go home, we come to church, we learn a few things, and then we go home and we do whatever we want. That's not the point. The point is to learn Jesus, to understand his presence, and to begin to draw more and more of Christ throughout the week, throughout our lives, and begin to learn and live a habit or a, a, a live a life from his presence. And I don't know why I'm saying that, but somebody needs to hear all this stuff about church. I don't know, I'm like, I went off on church. I'm like, come back, Kevin. I love the church. I'm for it. No matter whatever form, if you preach Christ crucified and resurrected, and Jesus is the only way, I'm on page. I don't think I got it all figured out. All I'm trying to do is give Jesus what he wants. That's all I'm trying to do. And I ask the question, what is it, Jesus, that you want? What do you want? So I struggle. So you're probably hearing a little bit of my struggle trying to figure out what is it you want, Lord, so that we can give you what you want. Lastly, the shepherd wants to know you. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, he wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. And here's the last verse, John 10, 19. It says, when he said these things, the people were divided in their opinions against him. The people... In this day, in the people in our day, the first thing is to irrationally dismiss Jesus. Oh, he has a demon. Oh, he's just no one. He's just, you know, irrationally dismiss. Christianity, who has, we just irrationally dismiss it. Then there are the others who rationally tolerate them. This is the majority. The majority of people rationally tolerate Jesus. He's one among many, right? He's a good man. He's a this, he's a that, whatever. They rationally tolerate him and by nature are hesitant towards him. They're spectators. They stand off and just, you know, they're not for him or against him. They're more just rationally tolerating him. 
But what Jesus wants is he wants people to recklessly, I misspelled that. <laughs> he wants people to recklessly abandon themselves to him. This is what he wants. What God wants is neither to irrationally, he doesn't mind, he won't irrationally dismiss him, fine. But Jesus wants you in or out, hot or cold. The middle ground does not really please him at all. That's right. He wants us to recklessly abandon. What he wants from his sons and daughters is to be ravenously hungry for more of him. We pull on him. Our appetite, our desires, our needs pull on him and actually activate his presence. Woman with the issue of blood was healed because she pulled on him. He wasn't even aware of her, but she pulled on him in the spirit, you see. And what God wants from his sons and daughters is to be hungry for his presence, hungry for his power, hungry for his purpose. We pull on that. This is what he wants from us. You have permission to be radical. In case no one hasn't given you permission, in case you've been around people or Christians that say, you know, you need to calm down. I'm here to tell you, you have permission to be radical. You have permission to be alive in your faith. You have permission to live in joy and power and purpose for Christ. If you ever wanted permission, it's permission granted today. If you're here this morning, what God wants from you, and you've never given your heart to him, he wants you to recklessly abandon yourself to him. If you're a Christian here this morning, and you've just been living below the line, and you've just been living the life of average, and you've just been like, eh, you know, he wants you to recklessly abandon yourself to him. So we're going to pray. We'll close the service. But if you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, we're going to pray as a group. And as we pray, just open your heart and pray with us. You don't need to understand it. You just need to believe it. All right? So let's just pray together. We're going to ask Jesus to come into our lives. So pray with me, Elevate. If that's you, pray with me. Listen with your heart. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you are the Savior, that you died for me, that you rose again. I may not understand this, I believe it. And so I open my heart to you.